Hello, listeners. Before we begin, some brief content warnings. This episode contains profanity, discussion of sexual violence, general discussion of violence and death, and explicit discussion of the death of an infant, general mentions of sex and sexuality, and general discussion of racism, homophobia, and associated tropes. As always, please take care of yourself while listening. And now, here we go. listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we talk about modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person, linguist-ish, etc. Um, and I'm Allison, your Roman archaeologist slash late antique archaeology person. <laughs> So before we jump into this week's episode, which is about, uh, it's our final part on Troy Fall of a City. Uh, thank God. Thank God. Uh, we wanted to do some quick, like, housekeeping stuff. This is the first episode that we're recording after we've started posting episodes, and the podcast is now live, and we're starting to hear back from people, and we've been really flattered by all of the things that people have been saying to us. Yeah, no, we we're I think we were like we've been kind of surprised that people have been actually listening so thank you very much to everybody who's given our podcast a listen and people who have like followed us on Twitter um we really appreciate it yeah we definitely encourage people to like come and talk to us even if it's just like hey I listened to it that's enough that's flattering enough yeah no we're we are very happy to hear from people (laughs) for sure um we did want to particularly shout out uh dw frauenfelder who follows us on twitter and who is a blogger about classics and and classical media and reception and who mentioned us in a couple of his blog posts in the last couple of weeks in very flattering terms uh we just wanted you to know that we're really excited that you liked it. Yes. <laughs> and and wanted to talk about it, about our podcast. So yeah, that was that was very cool. And I guess we should get started. Oh. Both of us hate this show so much, we are so happy to be done. A deep burning passion in our souls for passionate hatred in our souls for this show. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with a recap. Of these uh. last two episodes of Troy Fall of the City. So, episodes seven and eight of the 2018 Netflix miniseries Troy Fall of a City detail the final events of the Iliad and the immediate aftermath, including the end of the Trojan War and the subsequent sack of Troy. Episode seven opens with the Trojans pleading for the return of Hector's body, which Achilles refuses to give back. Eventually, Priam, the king of Troy, goes by himself to ask Achilles for his son's body back. And after some kind of back and forth, Achilles ends up agreeing and returning the body, as well as promising Priam 12 days of a ceasefire for a formal mourning period. However, when Achilles brings this news to the other Greek kings, they are less than impressed, and ultimately... Agamemnon, Menelaus, and Odysseus plot to disrespect the ceasefire, as it were. They plot a a sneak attack on Troy, which includes tricking Achilles into believing that the Trojans have betrayed the peace first. 
The gathered Greek forces, including Achilles, attack Troy, and Achilles is ultimately killed at the gates. Also in this episode, important to note, the Greek spy within Troy, a man named Xanthius, gets captured. In episode 8, Helen has finally decided that she's having some second thoughts about remaining in Troy. She helps Xanthius, the spy, escape and sends him back to the Greek camp with a message for Menelaus that she will voluntarily return if he promises not to kill anyone else within Troy, including Paris. Soon after, the Greeks pretend to leave Troy's shores with only a massive horse left behind on the beach. The Trojans accept the horse as a blessing and bring it inside the walls. That night, it turns out that inside the horse, shocker, are Menelaus and Odysseus, who Helen meets and helps to open the gates, at which point the Greeks reveal that they have no intention of keeping her original terms of the agreement, and they invade through the now open gates and burn the city. The Trojan royals, excluding Andromache, Cassandra, and Aeneas, are killed, the city is burned, and the Greeks sail away with the captive women and spoils. And that's it. That's it. That's the whole show. We're done. The city has fallen. Thank <laughs> God. I, yes, the torture is over. Now we just get to talk about how bad it was for yeah. the next hour. Yeah. So it feels a little redundant at this point, but like, did you like these last two episodes? No. <laughs> Me neither. I, the show like kind of had an okay middle section and then it went straight back to being complete trash fire garbage at the end. Yeah, they really managed to make the worst possible decision at every turn with the source material. Yeah, and by with the source material, I mean by actively ignoring the source material in a lot of ways that were really stupid and unnecessary. Yes. So let's jump right in. We'll kind of do episode seven and then we'll do episode eight. Here's what I have to say about the plot of episode seven. It didn't need to happen. Yes. Uh-huh. So so here's the thing. In the Iliad, the thing about Achilles refusing to give back Hector's body and Priam going to supplicate Achilles and like going by himself to supplicate Achilles and beg for his son's corpse to be returned so that they can like have a funeral. That's like a thing that happens and I like it a lot. And Overall, I felt like they did that pretty well, so we can talk about that in a second. But the overall plot of this episode is that Priam, like, asks for a ceasefire so that they can have a funeral, which in the Iliad, what happens during this time is that the Greeks are also having big mourning rites at this time. It's not like, oh, the Greeks are just, like, sitting around doing nothing. But instead, in the show, they had Patroclus's funeral right away. They completely cut the whole period where Achilles is, like, too distraught to have proper funeral rites for Patroclus. But here it's like, oh, no, we need to, like, have a ceasefire, which is stupid. It is stupid. And I think one of the biggest things that annoyed me right off the bat with the episode was how... Um, and I'm sure you're going to have thoughts on this because this is your area of research, is how grief was handled in the women's like reactions to the death of their loved ones versus the men's reactions to the death of their loved ones. Whereas like both Andromache and Hecuba are basically sort of described as like absolutely losing their minds. Like yeah. they can't like cope at all. They can't like form coherent thought anymore. Whereas, like, while we do later see Priam show emotion, he's, like, put together. And then when we contrast that with that with how Achilles is showing grief, he's he's just not 
he just like doesn't show any grief at all which absolutely drives me nuts because in the source material the whole thing about Achilles is that he's the one who's who's absolutely lost his mind at the death of this person he really cares about whereas in here he's completely composed the entire time yeah I mean so here's the thing about mourning in Homer and in Greek literature more generally so there's like a couple of things some of which they did and some of which they didn't do one of them is that mourning is one of the few times that like people can really be extremely unrestrained about their emotions and it's culturally acceptable to be so but also that things like wailing tearing at your hair and clothes you know tearing at your skin these are things that women do during funerals and it's like ritual as well as emotional yeah and they also do they also sing laments so we get like the women singing we don't really get them singing a lament because god forbid we have any kind of formulaic poetry in any adaptation of homer ever (laughs) despite the fact that like homer is incredibly metatextual about its own formulaicness in certain circumstances but like lament and mourning and like funeral customs and all of these things they're extremely ritualistic and they're very prescribed in a lot of ways in greek culture including as far back as homer for those who are interested the landmark volume on lamentation in greek tradition is entitled the ritual lament in greek tradition it's by margaret alexiou and it's actually the full text of it is available online through the center for hellenic studies she has a chapter on archaic tradition and homer it's really cool stuff and they just threw it all out yep Mm -hmm. yeah and there's no there is no ritual almost no ritual aside from the bit where we hear them singing in the way that they're mourning like it's it's like they've completely lost their minds whereas like to ritually lament you have to have some sort of sense that you that's what you're doing whereas there's really a sense with especially the female characters that they just cannot like string together any sort of yeah. like, coherent thought at Hecuba all. Hecuba goes nonverbal and yeah. Dramaki is like quote unquote irrational and gets all like blamey towards Helen which is like she's right. Yes. Um, so yeah, this whole like, and, and there's kind of a nod to the ritualistic nature of Greek mourning in that it, when Priam asks for, he's like, I need the 12 days of peace. I need food for a funeral feast, all of these things. And that Achilles is like, yes, these are reasonable requests. Like there is a nod to the fact that there is a cultural tradition here that everyone's aware of and like kind of respectful of, but then they don't they don't, like, do it very effectively in a lot of ways. They just kind of acknowledge the fact that such a thing exists and then go ahead and do whatever stupid bullshit they want anyways. Yes. I, I think that's really what's happening in this show. That's, yeah. that's it. That's the show. Is This they... is the thing is, like, in some ways, some of the stuff we get indicates to me that they are very aware of what's in the source material. They've just elected to ignore it. Yes. <laughs> go back a little bit to what I just said about Priam, this scene where Priam comes to supplicate Achilles is... I was really sad that we didn't get some of the, like, behavioral stuff because supplication is also quite ritual in in Mm. Greek literature and Greek tradition. There's, like, a way that you go about dropping to your knees, clasping the knees of the person that you are supplicating, making the request, and it's, like, a pretty big deal. It's, like, a significant cultural ritual, and... We just didn't get any of that. Priam just kind of shows up and somebody like lets him into the camp, 
just, like, just lets him. And is like, you're gonna, like, why do they not just stab him? In the Iliad, he, like, sneaks in and I think it's Hermes, like, shrouds him in shadow so that he can get all the way to Achilles' tent without anybody seeing him. He, like, gets turned invisible, which is, like, again... They only use the gods when they, like, want to hand wave some, like, themes instead of for <laughs> the gods actually doing anything. It's like, this would have been a great opportunity to have some fun god stuff happening. Yeah. But no. Instead, we have no fun god stuff happen at all in this entire series, despite the gods, like, existing and being shown. Yeah. And the other thing th- about this scene that I really, that's, like, really important to me as far as the Iliad goes is that... In the Iliad, it's very clear that what happens is that Priam's grief arouses Achilles' grief, and specifically, he looks at Priam and imagines his own father, because Achilles, by this point, is well aware of the fact that he is going to die in this war, and his own father is going to be in this position where his his son is going to be dead and he's going to be left without an heir, and... Priam is an old man begging on his knees and Achilles can only like imagine his own father and and the grief of like a family that's lost their child. It has a lot to do with Patroclus as well, but it's it's also specific to Achilles' relationship with his father, which we like don't get any of that. Yeah. It's... And Achilles doesn't really get to be sad. He... No, he doesn't. And that was this was definitely this is one of those cases where it's like, man, you made a lot of decisions with Achilles' characters that are racist. Yeah, he <laughs> continues to just like be the like stoic warrior TM. I don't know. He kind of is like, my life sucks in this episode, but it's in this very like bland way. Like there's no sense of his grief. No. Really. Like we get his anger when he finds out that Patroclus has been killed, but we don't at any point really get a strong sense of his own grief over Patroclus' death. He just sort of, like, stares moodily into the distance a lot. Like, that's about it. Yeah. In terms of the, like, acting. One of the few acknowledgements that we really get of Achilles' grief is we do get an interesting scene before Odysseus tricks him into going to fight the Trojans again there's a scene between the two of them where Achilles is like at the end of this you're gonna go home to Penelope Agamemnon's gonna go home to Clytemnestra, Menelaus is gonna go home with his prize where am I going to go? And he says sometimes I feel like I don't belong on this earth. Which is like oof. Yep. It's an accurate and like tonally I mean as far as, like, the dialogue in the show goes, this is, like, what I would expect them to do as far as depicting fairly accurately Achilles' suicidal ideation at this point, which is, yeah, like, he feels like he has nothing left now that Patroclus is dead, and he's just, like, gonna die, and it's kind of fine. Yeah. Um, I want to back up a little bit time-wise, yeah. because in the middle of this whole drama surrounding Achilles being tricked back into fighting is a scene between Aeneas and Penthesilea. Yep. I made a note about this too. (laughs) Yep. And I wrote, what the fuck is up with this queer baiting bullshit? That was my note on that. Um, And also this, oh boy. So this scene, this scene basically involves the implication that Penthesilea 
was romantically involved with the woman who was killed in the last episode. Yeah, the other Amazon. Yeah. Did Achilles killed her? Yeah, Achilles killed her because he, like, slit a bunch of their throats until he got Hector to come out and fight them. Right, right, right. Yeah, so we get this this implication that that's what's going on. This is never shown. As well, the Amazons are conventionally attractive women dressed in sexy costumes. So this is very clearly, like, male gazy. And then we've got the bit where she's like, well, if I wasn't a lesbian, I would totally sleep with you, Aeneas. Which... I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah. I, this, it's like, I love how it's like, oh, great, we're just going to get this, like, vague nod to the lesbians existing after one of them's already dead. This show has a barrier gaze problem. It, it does have a barrier gaze problem, which is, like, they invented gaze to bury, basically. Like, yeah. They, they did the, like, fun, like... Like, the Iliad itself arguably has a bury your gaze problem from before bury your gaze was even a problem. I, so, I, are we... But, are, like... Are we blaming Homer for the invention of bury your gaze? I mean, I think I've said this in, like, every episode since we got the introduction of Achilles and Patroclus. But, again, Achilles and Patroclus are not involved in the text of Homer. Yeah. So, yeah. no. But it is certainly the case that, like certain depictions of Achilles and Patroclus have become barrier gaze in the way that that whole thing gets handled. And particularly this show, since they decided randomly to do it again, they were like, yeah, all the gays can, the gays can be here, but only if one of them is already dead. (laughs) Yeah. I also am just sort of now remembering that we actually don't have any romantic scenes between two queer people because we've we Briseis is inserted in there and while I love the Briseis thruple like they're like oh we can't have just two men making out it's not gay if it's a three way (laughs) not to like be like that but yeah her being there does make the whole situation a little bit no homo and it's also we talked about this last episode but like we don't get a sex scene with them no we don't We get them, like, making out a bit, and we get an implication that all three of them slept together, but unlike with Helen and Paris, who we see fucking a lot, we don't get an actual sex scene with them. Yeah, and, gosh, to to circle back just briefly to the Amazons again, like, they are only there as A, queer baiting, and B, for, like, male viewers to be like, ooh, look at the sexy woman. Like, and then to it. die. Yes, and, yep, and then to die. Um, yep, that's it. Because if you look at their costuming, like, a lot of the Trojans and Greeks, like, they're all costumed, even though the costumes are kind of ridiculous, there's at least some attempt to put them in something, especially, like, the male, the male characters, into something that would be practical for battle. Like, they've got, like, leather breastplates and everything, whereas... The Amazons are basically naked. Yeah, like, they have these, like, <laughs> massive gaps. Their armor's made of, like, rope. Yeah, it's like they have this, like, Penthesilea has this, like, weird, like, netting on her arms, and then she has, like, a tiny little leather crop top, and then, like, a tiny little leather, like, bikini skirt thing, and that's it. And it's like, why? <laughs> yeah. Let's move forward a little bit in the episode. I'd like to talk about the combat in the, like, back 
10 minutes of mm-hmm. this episode. First of all, super shitty and stupid and annoying that we got six and three quarters episodes into this series before we got a large scale combat scene with chariots because that's all that's in the Iliad is yeah. large scale combat with chariots. I think there was one large scale combat scene, but I don't think there were any chariots in it. Yeah, I think so. it was, and I think it was like the night combat, which is also not a thing that happens in the Iliad. Like they don't fight at night because this is it's ancient dark. times and people can't see. And yeah, no chariots. Sad that Achilles' horses are not immortal and can talk. You know, we all want that to be the truth. I really, that's like one of my favorite stupid bullshit things in the Iliad, that the horses can talk. And are like, hey, Achilles, you're gonna die. And he's like, thanks, bro. Oh, that's so good. Then he rides into battle anyways. Oh. Cannon. So yeah, we get this like combat. Achilles rides into battle. He fights Penthesilea for like three seconds and then he kills her. So I've written here and I don't know what this means. Okay, is the Penthesilea slash Achilles dual motivation canonical? And I can't even remember at this point what their dual motivation was. So if you can remember and tell me if it's canonical, that would be great, because apparently I was annoyed about this. Yeah. Okay, so the fight between Achilles and Penthesilea happens in what is called um, the Aethiopus, which is a part of the epic cycle. It's an epic that is like a sequel to the Iliad. It's probably actually originates around the same time, but very little of it survives. I want to say like, like six lines of it survive or something. (laughs) And we also have, we have like a synopsis of it and we have some discussion of it in places. So we kind of know what was in it. And one of the things that's in the Aethiopus is Penthesilea and her fight with Achilles. So she arrives in the aftermath of the death of Hector, her and another Trojan ally, um, Memnon, who is Ethiopian. That's why it's called the Ethiopus. Um, They arrive from like fun, foreign, strange place, which is to say they're brown people, to like help out the Trojans. They just like haven't been able to get here until now, I guess. And Penthesilea fights Achilles on the battlefield and then gets killed. And there's kind of a thing in there that's like, oh, somebody in the Aethiopus makes a joke about how Achilles, like, fell in love with her as he was killing her. So we get that in, like, some later stuff about him that he, like, fell in love with her as they were fighting and then killed her. It's pretty bad, but, like, that's kind of the deal. The whole, like, her hating him already thing, that I don't know where that comes from and I don't necessarily think that it's really a thing beyond that she's just on the opposite side of the war. Yeah, that's my sense because here I remembered why she's mad is because Achilles killed her girlfriend. Yeah, except she professes to hate him even before. Does? Oh yeah, she does. Okay, so who knows what that's about. They just pulled it out of their asses for (laughs) no reason. Overall, the Penthesilea thing It's from a source that we just don't have anymore, so we don't really have any details for them to work off of. And they didn't invent any details, really. Uh, The fight lasts, like, two minutes, and he kills her. And she just dies in this incredibly anticlimactic way after doing absolutely nothing for the plot. They should have left her out. Yep. And I'm also also sad that we didn't get more, like, of Achilles's like, rage fighting after the death of, death of Patroclus, because we just get this, basically. Yeah, um, we talked about this last episode. We don't get his rampage yeah. at all. Yeah, which is very sad. 
because and then in in this particular battle that he spends like two minutes fighting before he gets killed yeah like it does not take very long they had him kill Penthesilea, and then he's like chasing down priam and parachutes him in the neck and then he has an unlikely amount of dialogue while he has an arrow in his neck. Yes. Well, first, first Paris shoots him in the in the heel. Right. First uh, Paris shoots him in the heel. Okay. You know what? I was like, all right, fine. Yeah. It's it's one of these things that they've done again, where they're like, we have the gods here, but we're not going to do any of the magical god shit. Yeah. But then no. we're going to include the plot point that has to do with the magical god god shit because like the whole point of the Achilles heel is that he's only vulnerable in his heel because his mother in trying to make him immortal has like made almost all of his body immortal by dipping him in a special river, but he, she had to hold him by his heel so his heel's not immortal. Yeah. But no, you don't get to they don't include any of the cool god shit, which I mean, again, my I, my favorite classic shit post on Tumblr of all time is the one that's like, why didn't she just like put him in a bag and dip the whole bag in the river? Or alternately, some someone was like, just put him in one of these and rattle him around like a batch of chicken nuggets, and it's like a fryer, like a fryer basket thing. <laughs> yeah, like Thetis, get you a fucking aluminum fryer basket, put your baby in, and just like shake him around until he's immortal. All over. It's it's about it's about the metaphor. It's about the, they 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 couldn't they couldn't do that for metaphorical reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, at least with the heel thing being the way it is, we got some like real fun, sexy like art and statuary. It's that very sexy statue of Achilles with an arrow in his heel, looking real tortured. Oh gosh, I love tortured Hellenistic statue. Yeah. Statuary. Like they really went off. They really decided that everybody needed to have like muscles on their muscles. <laughs> I also did want to give a shout out because in this episode where they're having a feast at one point, they have a fun octopus jug. Yeah, I saw that. has an octopus tattoo on her arm of this that's like inspired by this style. So yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I also, Uh, I noted the octopus jug. So, okay, so speaking of the cool octopus jug that we both really liked, uh, that I, like, have a tattoo based on, I actually just want to, like, make a kind of a side note before we finish up talking about plot, which is, I had some questions for you about, like, set dressing stuff. Okay, Okay, hit me up. The first one is, I have a note that just says in all caps, CHAIRS. So can you, like, did people sit in chairs? Well, so Egyptians had chairs. Whether or not chairs because we have like chairs i think there's like for example chairs from king tut's tomb which is like which are like actual chairs okay and king tut's tomb around god i don't know off the top of my head it's it's sort it's late bronze age it's roughly in the vague time period okay so chairs did exist in the mediterranean in the also, late bronze age point of clarification when i say chairs i mean like a thing with four legs and a back yes yeah so yeah it's, they've got like the arms like a traditional chair shape that like we would recognize as a chair not like a weird like stool or something yeah yeah so they i don't know specifically about this like place or time and it's hard to tell what sort of forms of furniture people had outside of Egypt because wood decomposes. Yeah. But it doesn't decompose in Egypt because it's super dry. So shout out to Egypt um, yeah. for being dry and preserving things. Yes. Okay, yeah, because I just, like, I made a note because I know from my own studies of, like, classical Greece that people reclined at meals. Oh, that's usually. true. Yeah. 
so it struck me as a little weird, but I don't think we have anything in Homer about the furniture aside from like tripods for cauldrons and stuff, which yeah. are like a thing, but like. And I think there's some part of my brain that is like vaguely seems to remember something about people reclining in the Near East and that being imported to Greece. But I don't know if that's true or if my brain has just made that up. Okay. Um, but also in the late Bronze Age, like we're so divorced from the classical period that yeah. I don't yeah, I I don't actually really know about how people were would have like eaten at banquets in okay. the late Bronze Age. Okay. Um people would have had big ass banquets in the late Bronze Age. Feasting is very important. One of the things that annoys me in the show is that the Trojans are never really having big feasts. Like, they're having a family dinner, and I'm like, what? Yeah, he said, he's like, oh, we need to, like, have a funeral feast, and then what they're having is just, like, a regular meal. It's, yeah. There's always, like... It's not a feast unless you're roasting a whole cow. Yes. And, and whenever, even when they do have big parties, it's, like, not that big of a party. And I'm like, no, these parties would have been, like, huge. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, by this point, like... Two thirds of Troy's population is dead. Th- that's true. Um. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it, but yeah. Okay, so here's my second object question: drinking vessels. Mm-hmm. So in the episode, we get them drinking out of these like quite modern-looking like goblets. Yes, those are stupid. Okay, um, I thought so. I don't. I don't really know specifically. I have looked at late Bronze Age feasting wares, but usually. The wares, the wares that come to the top of my head are all things that are sort of larger vessels. And, like, for, shallower, right? Yeah, well, they're all sort of, like, they're vessels that would have, like, held the communal things that everybody would have shared. I can't think off the top of my head out of, uh, about, like, specific vessels, but they would not have looked like that. Like, okay. that is not really a shape. That kind of, like, hourglass shape, like, yeah. cup, like cup on the top and then, like, a wider base. Yeah, like a wine, no. like a modern wine glass. Yeah, it looks like a wine glass. And no, that's not what they would have looked like. My guess is probably that they would have been more sort of shallow bowl-like. But yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, but yes, those were dumb and I noticed them and it's like they they took a modern glass and they painted it, they painted it black and red and they're like, this is Greek now. Yeah. That's what okay. they did. Okay. When, um, but oh yeah, I guess another note though about late Bronze Age is like the the distinctive black and red pottery that you see from classical Greece does not exist in the late Bronze Age. All of these different places had very specific types of pottery, but also usually they would have been the the color of the clay that they were using with some sort of like black slip or paint. Slip, by the way, like is something that is distinguished from paint because it's actually like finer clay that they use to paint details on and then fire it. So it's very durable. Whereas like if you just paint okay. on top of a vessel, it's not that durable. Interesting. So yeah, but that's why you often have these like vessels that are only these two tones because it's very difficult to like you can't really make multicolored vessels with slip you have to do like anytime you see white on a greek vessel that's painted on but you can make two-tone vessels by using like a different texture of clay and also a specific pattern of firing so that's a that's a brief little note on how how those vessels would have looked um neat i like know a little bit about this stuff but not not very much. See, as archaeologists, all you do is, like, as Mediterranean archaeologists, all you do is think about pottery. Even if you're not a pottery specialist, like, pottery is what you find. And so that's, you You have to know about pottery. Great. Good for you. <laughs> 
Okay, I have like one to two more. I have like one more thing that's specific to this episode. Okay. Um, which is that Achilles dies at the gates of Troy and the Trojans just like burn his body. Yeah. Which sucks. And also sucks because, like, once again, this is this is something that, like, straight up would not happen. Yeah, like, I was so confused by that. I was like, why are they burning his body? What's, wh- why? Yeah, they have no reason to give him funeral rites. Like, burning somebody's body is, like, sending them off to the underworld. And, and it's, like, part of a funeral rite. And there's mm-hmm. no reason that they would do it. And, like... Why did the Greeks not try to get his body back so that they, like, even the Myrmidons? And I just, like, it's so weird. And it's just an extension of the same thing we got with Patroclus, where we don't get the combat over his body at all. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is they're also sort of confusing. Within the text of the show, they're confusing their messaging. Because they do use burning, like, they do use the burning of Patroclus's body as, like, a funeral rite. Yeah. So they have established in their own narrative that burning a body is a funeral rite yeah, that and is we respectable, get... and then they go in and burn Achilles' body? Like, it's not even just that it's not, doesn't make sense in, like, a Greek context, but within the their narrative that they have built, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and I mean, we do get Achilles, like, continuing to tend the, like, coals from Patroclus' pyre for, like, like he's still tending the, yeah. the fire. Yeah even many days after when Priam comes. So that's, like, the closest we get to a depiction of Achilles' continuing grief. It's just so... Basically, everything about Achilles' death felt really anticlimactic and kind of stupid, and I just, like, was like, okay, cool. Yeah, it was so weird that they wasted so much time in the show, and yet they spent almost no time on Achilles' death. Yeah. It was over in, like, a second. And also... This scene is really emblematic to me of what I have sort of pinpointed is my problem in the show with a lot of the, like, dialogue and how they're using that to do plot construction. Is it the characters say whatever they need to say for the plot to happen? Yeah. It doesn't have to do with characterization. They're just like, oh, we need to have the plot happen so the character will say this. And then, which leads to super inconsistent characterization. Like... Achilles yells Odysseus wouldn't do that in this scene when Paris is like, oh, like, we didn't break the truce. Like, Odysseus must have lied to you about us, like, breaking the ceasefire. Even though it doesn't make any sense for him to say that. Yeah, so, again, to clarify, basically what happens is they engineer for this other kind of slippery, shitty guy in the Greek camp to, like, pretend that he and one of the Myrmidons got attacked by some Trojans during the ceasefire, but actually that guy just, like, murdered the Myrmidon. Mm -hmm. And they tell Achilles that it was the Trojans. And, yeah, they just, like, they just, like, lie to Achilles straight to his face. He's kind of in denial, Especially since it's very obvious that them lying to him has essentially betrayed him to his death, and he doesn't want to believe that they would do it. But also, he's been blatantly disrespected to his face by Agamemnon several times, and he has no reason to believe that the other great kings have any respect for him. So, why the fuck would he... Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) No. Episode 8. Oh boy. I, I have a note here that to start off that's just like 
there there's a point where Paris is talking to a bunch of other characters plus Aeneas and we I get I think they have introduced them but like just so briefly we don't even remember them but my note is just they've killed off all their other characters they have to have dialogue with a bunch of randos yeah we've gotten like <laughs> one mention of Troilus and Dayphobus. Dayphobus. I I was like, which other Trojan prince did they decide to use for this one? Weird yeah. that they were like, yeah, Troilus and Dayphobus and not like Sarpedon or anybody oh, else who Sarpedon. has like, like more name recognition, yeah. but whatever. Uh, but I guess, I mean, we didn't get Patroclus' Aristea and he's the one who kills Sarpedon, so. Yeah. But still like very weird. And yeah, I, I also had a note that like the Trojan princes are, like, not recognizable at all other than Paris and Aeneas. Yeah. And Aeneas is only recognizable because he's the only brown guy. Well, yeah, he's also recognizable because he's Alfred Enoch, and Alfred Enoch looks a particular... Like, we, I, I like, know what Alfred Enoch looks yeah. like because he's But he is also things. the only black character yes. in Troy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which is... Um, yeah, they made a decision about that one. They sure did. Um, but yeah, it's like, because I'm sure, I think they have actually introduced Troilus and Dayphobus, but they come up so infrequently that when you see them again and, like, they're presented to you like you're supposed to recognize them, it's kind of like... Yeah, they're just two, like, other, they're just two more random white guys. Yeah, they're generic, two generic white men who we haven't spent enough time with to recognize, so... Yeah. Here is my major note for this episode i i want to talk about helen okay a minute and this is like kind of an overall note but i really hate the thing that they decide to do with helen in this episode where she like has she like has a not quite a change of heart exactly because she's still in love with paris but she like doesn't want any more of the trojans to die so she agrees to go back to sparta which is, like, she seems to have, like, almost, or, like, other people have, have like, I don't know, kind of tried to convince her that that would be the thing to do. Or, like, I don't know. There's, like, other times when she almost makes this decision and, like, doesn't. Yeah. And that it comes now feels a little weird and also, like, uh, not strictly out of character per se, but, like, it's pointless. And... In some ways, their attempt to, like, maybe kind of give her a little bit of agency here of, like, where she wants to be, in some ways robs her of more agency than she, like, all the agency she ever had, in that she doesn't get to decide to stay or to go. Yeah. Well, and also, it has the unfortunate side effect of blaming her for Troy's demise. Ultimate downfall, yeah. She's the one who lets the Greeks in the gate what ends up happening is she like she lets the spy guy go which i was like good for you spy guy um (laughs) glad he lived i kind of liked that character she lets the spy guy go partly because she doesn't want him to tell anybody that she was the one who like told achilles about cilicia which again i don't really think she was the one who did that but she like thinks that she was yeah i see this is deeply unclear to me i don't understand because i thought she didn't but then the plot seems to imply that she did but then it doesn't actually end up mattering yeah it doesn't really matter at all the conflict is not resolved until paris is about to be killed by menelaus and at that point it really doesn't doesn't matter so it's like why bring up this conflict in the first place and they spend a lot of time on this conflict Yeah, they spend a lot of time on helen like playing both sides 
essentially for no real reason. Yeah, to like keep the secret that she that Achilles came into the palace to get her and she let him go and that maybe this resulted in... Which she's like, the whole time it's like, oh, she feels so bad for all of the stuff that's happening to the Trojans because of her, but she won't own up to the, like, one thing that she actually was kind of responsible for. Yeah, it's so odd. And then it doesn't matter because they don't resolve it while Helen is still in the palace. They resolve it when... Paris is about to be killed by Menelaus, and he's like, well, Helen is saying right now that she loves me, and I'm about to die, so, like, it doesn't really matter that she may or may not have betrayed me at this point. Yeah, and, like, her attempts to make decisions for herself, like, never end up working out. So, in this case, she's like, okay, yeah, like, I will go back with you if you promise not to hurt anybody. And So what happens is the horse is there, And we get this, like, fun kind of fake-out type scene where they actually, like, open the horse and reveal its ribs because it's full of grain. And, like, they actually open up the whole horse and it's like, ooh, the Greeks aren't inside. Mmm, plot subversion. Mm -hmm. Which I was like, okay, what are they doing? And so it turns out that it's just Odysseus and Menelaus that are, like, hiding in the horse's head. And they pop out and, like, grab Helen, essentially. And they kill a couple of guards and they open the gates and there's, like, two ways that this could have happened. Either, I, which, like, I think that if she had, like, made that decision, I think she should have just walked out of the gates. They clearly were, like, oh, well, like, willing to open the gates for her. She's the fucking queen. Why did she, why did the whole thing with the, the horse have to happen at all if they were, like, pretending to agree to her terms, even? Why did they come into the city? I mean, she is, like, open the gates, yeah. And the guards do it, and then they kill them, and then the Greeks, like, come in the door, and she's like, what? Yeah. You said that you weren't gonna hurt anybody, and Menelaus is like, you stupid how you thought I was gonna listen to you, essentially. Which is, like, so... Her involvement was unnecessary if you were just gonna sneak in via the horse and kill the guards and open the gates anyways. But also... If she was going to agree to these terms, then you didn't need to sneak in. You could have just had her open the gates. Yeah, and I th- I think the thing is, is that they're like, well, we cannot do a Troy series without the Trojan horse, because that's like the most recognizable part of the narrative in yeah. a lot of ways. But then they didn't want to actually do the narrative. Yeah, they decided for whatever fucking reason that like... Oh, the horse is maybe too obviously a trick, I guess they thought, even though it is really obviously a trick and the Trojans bring it in anyways. And, like, there are ways to get around that. Uh, what is it? Aeneid 2 tells that narrative? I can't remember how that, like, that narrative being told in Aeneid 2, but it might happen in in Aeneid 2. It's 2 or 3 or uh, whatever. It's the been a one, long time since I read Aeneid 2. So. The one where the one where this whole follow Troy narrative gets told in the Aeneid, they tell the Trojan yes. horse story. I can't remember oh, the exact... Do. Yeah, what? they do. Oh, um, okay. Well, because... Well, and because because that's where we get the... Um, the, the Yeah, the Laocoon, like, story. Because he... Because he comes down and is like, hey, this is a trick. Yeah. And the Trojans, like, don't believe him. And then he gets strangled to death by snakes. Yes. Because the gods, like, don't want him talking shit. Which is a dope death. I yeah. Mean, I was yeah. strangled to death by snakes. There's a really cool statue. Um, yes, there is. But, yeah, so there's, like, ways to do it. And, I mean, 
There's also this thing where, like, in the Odyssey, we get this story about Helen. When they bring the horse into the city, Helen walks around, like, mimicking the voices of the wives of all the men inside, trying to, like, call out to them to get a response to, to like, startle them or get them to make some kind of noise or sign that there are men inside. She does this really cool, like, voice mimicry thing and, and calls out in the voices of, you know, Penelope and Clytemnestra and, like, all of the other, the, the, like, wives that she knows of the Greek heroes inside the horse to get them to give themselves away, and they remain silent. And so she's like, okay, well, I think that that would have worked to, like, get them to react if they were in there. And so that's one of, that's another one of the reasons that the Trojans are like, okay, is that Helen like devises a trick to try to get the Greeks to give themselves away that ultimately fails. And doing something like that would have been just as good as far as like giving her some agency and dealing with the horse. Yeah. Instead of once again, them deciding to throw out material that they have in Homer that is perfectly good in exchange for some dumb bullshit they made up that, like, doesn't really work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and an- another thing to do with the the horse that really annoyed me, um, and also when we showed this whole episode, is, like, Cassandra freaks out about the horse, and then Cassandra also starts freaking out later in the episodes when the um, Greeks are about to invade. And so in... The Iliad, we know why people doesn't don't believe Cassandra. It's because Apollo cursed her. Yep. But here, there's no reason for people not to believe Cassandra. We know at this point, like the characters know that Cassandra is prophetic. And in fact, Paris does believe her. Yeah, and so there's just, it's so confusing. It's completely inconsistent. Like either they believe her or they don't. And there's like a reason or they don't. Like, is she cursed or not? Yeah. And like, she... So, like, and another thing about Cassandra, we we get, like, I'm glad we didn't get the another explicit rape scene. Yeah. But we get the implication that she's been raped, but her, her rape during the sack of Troy is actually, like, a big important thing that has a lot to do with some of the immediate aftermath of Troy. Same thing with Achilles, the body of Achilles and Achilles' armor. Like, what happens to his armor has a lot to do with, like, the other heroes in the immediate aftermath. And this show is not interested in doing any of the longer aftermath for the for the, the Greeks. Rip to the two Ioses, but we don't care about them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's not like we need to include, like... Like, it makes sense to cut some characters out. Yeah. But, then, but it's the problem that they... Did they pick and choose the source material? And then it, it doesn't end up make, making sense because they've mashed all this stuff together without any of the, like, contextual bits. Yeah. That tie and they've the once again... Together. They've once again, like, had the opportunity to maybe do some stuff with, like, other canonical material, but they put in so much other dumb shit that fills the time that in the end we just, like, don't get any of that. I don't know. Those are some of my favorite stories from the aftermath, and I'm sad that we don't get them. But yeah, they they really, like, downplay the rape of Cassandra, which to me is a little bad. Yeah. And by a little bad, I mean very bad. Yes. N- nothing about this way, the way that this show handles sexual assault is good. Yeah. 
another thing from the aftermath, which is sad that they don't include at all, is they don't include any of the bits of the Aeneid, which have the aftermath of the Sack of Troy, um, or like the process of the Sack of Troy, which is so, I hate to say that it's fun, but it is fun. It is fun. <laughs> um, it's the, the text is really interesting, and Aeneas's experience of the Sack of Troy is really interesting because he really doesn't want to leave his city, but literally everyone is telling him that he needs to get the fuck out of there. And then instead Aeneas is like relegated to this like weird side character throughout the Sack of Troy. And then Paris tells him he needs to live for, he's like, you need to live for the rest of us, giving him like a bro on the shoulder tap. And it's again, one of those, those points where the, the writers are putting words in Paris's mouth because they they want a plot to happen. They're like, oh, Aeneas lives, so we're going to put the these words in his mouth. And this happens with other characters later as well. I think it happens with and, um, Andromache, like, tells Odysseus that she hopes he's cursed. Yeah. It's just, it's all of the stuff where it's like, oh, we're going to nod to the Odyssey and to these other texts by putting words in the characters' mouths that don't make any sense for something they would actually say because they don't have... Paris doesn't have the foresight to know that Aeneas is going to live. And Paris has no reason to think that he would survive what's about to go on. Like, yeah. they're about to murder everyone. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, you gotta hide. You think they're not going to fucking look? I, I don't know what he expects. But, I mean, ultimately Aeneas does live, so... Backtracking a little bit to to Andromache and what you just said about Andromache, um, I did want to, like, talk about the final, final thing that happens, basically, which is that, uh, which is the murder of Estianax. Which is Andromache's child. Andromache and Hector's child, yeah. So we get this kind of interesting thing where Odysseus, like, finds her... He, like, finds her in the tomb where she, like, comes out when he's searching and to kind of distract him, I guess, from the presence of the baby. And he kind of lets, he tries to, like, let the baby live, essentially. Yeah, because he hears a child crying, but he's like, I'm just going to ignore this. I'm just going to ignore this, essentially. He, like, tries not to have to kill the baby because he knows that they're going to have to kill the baby if the Mm -hmm. baby is found. And so he brings Andromache out and then other weird shithead guy who's, like, been a side character, like, finds the baby at the very end and, like, brings him out. And Agamemnon is, like, Odysseus, you have to kill the baby, essentially. And Odysseus, like, is really reluctant, but he does do it. We get, like, this kind of horrible scene of him, like, dropping the baby off of the walls. They did a pretty okay job of, like, giving us this kind of horrible scene of Odysseus killing the baby without actually giving us an explicit, like, shot of yeah. the baby hitting the ground. Which you but, can't really do anyway. I mean, It's a difficult yeah. shot to do, so I, I don't wasn't think they would sure, have done that. I wasn't that. sure how they were going to deal with it. Um, I, well, see, oh, see, I knew when I was, like, because there's a point where he's holding the baby and it's, like, a close-up. I'm like, I okay, mean, they're going to zoom out now because they can't drop a baby off the off the wall close-up. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I knew that they were, by, by that point, yeah, I was like, okay, I can see how they're going to execute this. But, or, like, previous to it, I was like, oh, are they going to, like, try to dodge it entirely in some way? Or are we just going to have him, like, murder the baby off screen? And that's, like, it. I kind of thought when he found Andromache that he was going to, like, murder the baby off screen. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. 
So, but they didn't. And I think that this is to do with a greater thing that I want to say about Odysseus's character in these two episodes, which are, he kind of does like a heel face turn. Thus far in the show, basically right up until Achilles dies, Odysseus has very much been like twisty, tricksy, devious Odysseus. He lies to Achilles and then Achilles dies and he's like all sad and regretful. And in the aftermath of him being sad and regretful because Achilles is dead, because I guess they were friends or whatever, not that we got to see that on the screen at all. He suddenly is like, maybe I won't do horrible, inhumane war crimes to people. (laughs) Which is like, in some ways I think that this whole thing with the murder of Estianax and Odysseus killing the baby would be a lot more effective if Odysseus had stayed this quite cold, like, character. I understand they're trying to, like, give him some depth, but, like, it reframes everything that happens to, like, everything about Odysseus in a way that's like, oh, he's, like, a good person in some ways. And Andromache, like, curses him for doing this horrible, like, crime. And that's why bad shit happens to him later. It kind of foreshadows the Odyssey. But, like, all the bad shit that happens in the Odyssey happens because Odysseus is a shithead. Yes. (laughs) His character development happens in the Odyssey. Yeah. And I also think, yeah, him having this, like, change of heart. I didn't even get that it was supposed to be because of Achilles' death, which shows you how well that was executed. That's how I, that's how I kind of clocked it. Yeah, so I think I think you're right about that, but the fact that I didn't really clock that there is supposed to be an event that triggered a behavior change shows you how well it was executed. Yeah, because it, it, it just all of a sudden, it's like all of a sudden um, Odysseus gains a conscience, and you're like, but why is he gaining a conscience, conscience when we've established him as this character who is very, yeah, like, tricksy and is willing, even though he doesn't, he doesn't take joy in violence, but he is very happy to be violent when it when it will lead to the end goal that he wants. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't mind or is unwilling to do violence when he feels it is necessary. And he's also not unwilling to like lie and deceive when he feels it's necessary. His ultimate goal and like we get other stuff of him being like relatively humane. Like he makes it possible for Briseis to escape during the final attack on Troy. Oh, is that canonical? No, oh, okay. but that's what happens in the show. Yeah, no, because, well, that was another thing where I was like, this is not in his character at all. Why would he let Briseis escape? That doesn't... Because because doesn't it doesn't make... hurt him in any way to do it. Yeah. And to me, that's the kind of thing that's like, yeah, this is a character who's capable of, like, humanity and compassion when he is not going to be disadvantaged by doing this. That's a good point. Like, that's the kind of thing... Whereas, like, with the murder of Estianax, he clearly understands as well as Agamemnon does that if they leave any, like, heir to the royal family alive, there could be problems down the line, which is why he kills him. And he wants to avoid anybody else finding out about it so that he doesn't have to do it, like, so that he doesn't get pressured into doing it. But once he's faced with the choice in public, he does it. He doesn't put up any real, like, stink about it because he clearly understands that, like, this is actually quote unquote necessary. Yeah. And I mean, my thought on Briseis, though, was like, we all know how pissy Agamemnon gets when something happens to his property. So why would 
Odysseus risk Agamemnon getting super pissy over something by letting his proper his quote-unquote property escape that to me was it was a decision that could have actually impacted their military efforts because yeah we've already seen Agamemnon get really pissy and that really impact what's going on yeah just to like make a side note about Briseis so there's a couple things here one of them is that her needing to escape here at all is kind of counter to canon. What happens in canon is that as part of the process of trying to convince Achilles to come back to the battlefield, Agamemnon gives her back. Oh. Yeah. Like, there's actually a protracted period of the Greeks being like, Achilles, please come back to fighting with us. There's the embassy to Achilles in book nine, and where, like, Odysseus and and Odysseus and Ajax and Phoenix, who is Achilles' like old mentor guy, go to him and are like, hey, please come back to the battlefield. They try to like persuade him. And when that fails, Agamemnon gives everything back. Like, plus he gives Briseis back and he hands over a fucking king's ransom to try to appease Achilles. And by that point, Achilles is like, This isn't just about the girl anymore. This is about you fucking pissing on my honor you prick <laughs> and he still refuses to go back to fighting and also the kind of epiphany that Achilles has had during the time away from the battlefield that this whole war is stupid and pointless so by the time the the end of the Iliad rolls around Briseis is back in the Myrmidons camp and Achilles like has her back and when it's, I believe, at least somewhat canonical that Odysseus essentially arranges for her to be married to one of his other trusted Myrmidons so that she does actually have, like, a stable household and some... Pro- she's still a captive woman, but she has, like, some protection. Mm. She's not just flung out onto the waves of whatever man will claim her. And she doesn't stay with, with Agamemnon. Achilles makes arrangements for her. Mm. So that, like, doesn't happen here, because whatever. They wanted her to escape so that she could go and, like, be with the surviving Trojans. Yes, the the four surviving Trojans. Yeah, so to to be clear, Aeneas survives. There's this little kid who was, like, friends with Xanthius, the spy guy, and his older brother, who's, like, a teenager, basically. Yeah. And then as they're, like, standing in the middle of the burned-out city, Briseis appears in the open gates, and it's just, like, the four of them going off to found Rome. Yeah. <laughs> Road trip! Oh, man. Yeah, I... That... There's just no relationship between any of the characters, so them all standing together at the end is like, why? Just, like, the last people standing. Whatever. <sighs> I don't know. It's very odd. Sort of last thing we have to talk about before we can leave this trash fire behind us are the, we get a little bit of the gods at the end yeah okay and what are your thoughts well i'm annoyed because again they spend we spend so little time with the gods even though they're they play a quite a big role in the first episode they really don't appear very much after that and then we get this scene of aphrodite being really sad that aeneas that Paris. Oh, sorry, that Paris is dead. And we have, I think we have like 
I think it's Hera and, Hera and, and Athena. Yeah, Hera and Athena are standing Though in the Though the other goddesses continue to be unrecognizable. Yeah, I think it's Hera, Hera, Hera and Athena standing sort of behind her. And it's like, well, we really haven't established any relationship between Paris and Aphrodite. So there's really no reason for them to be sad or for the gods to be involved or have too much, like, stake in this war because we really haven't spent any time with them. And then also... I, I don't know, I was kind of no- annoyed because we all know that Aeneas is the son of Aphrodite and Aphrodite's out here mourning over over Paris when her son is like wandering out in this like burned out city and it's like, you might want to go check on your son, hun. Yeah, <laughs> this is the thing is like, there's kind of this implication that Aphrodite thought she managed to like trick fate by Paris. So... I said this last episode, I was like, oh yeah, Aphrodite's like starting shit by telling everyone that the curse was resolved when he like died and was revived by the Amazons. And it turns out that she was not purposely starting shit. She like also thought that she'd fixed it somehow. I do not understand the curse plot at all. I guess they, the, the curse was over, but like the only curse that he caused was them bringing war to Troy maybe. And that the, the downfall of Troy didn't have to do with the curse or something. I don't know. I'm really it's confused really, by that plot. It's really unclear. And like Aphrodite doesn't understand either. Like the <laughs> gods don't yeah. seem like there's definitely some like will of Zeus shit. But even Zeus is like, we can't change fate, which we talked about this a little bit. Yeah. Like the gods are not above like fate in the universal sense in some ways, but also as far as like the affairs of mere mortals the gods' wills are fate. So it doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense for Zeus to be kind of abdicating responsibility for whose will it was that made all this happen. Yeah. I mean, the Zeus in this show is very, like, reserved and, like, stoic, which is not who Zeus is in Greek mythology. Neither of those are words I would use to describe Zeus. Like, Zeus is the pettiest bitch Yep. in most mythological stories that feature him he's so petty yeah and it's like man like why why use the source material at all if you don't actually want to use it right like why why use the trappings of this i guess they use the trappings of this to get funding to make a big tv show i guess that's basically it but yeah yeah disappointing so here's my big final general note and the thing that i have come away from this show thinking about which is that as you just said they use the trappings of like homer and the epic cycle without really like using the material they they seem to have had their own idea about like what kind of story they were gonna tell and they threw out a lot of material from the Iliad that probably would have served the themes they were going for and the story they were telling just fine, but they weren't interested in in engaging with any of the details of this material. They just wanted the broad strokes of the plot and the setting and the characters so that they could kind of do a looser version of the story. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is... With adaptation, like, there's, and I think we've talked about this too, like, they don't really seem to have any philosophy of adaptation. And it's not like you have to do a perfectly accurate adaptation of the source material. 
you can do a very sort of loosely inspired adaptation that draws heavily on mythological themes or particular themes from the source text. I think a really good example of this is Hades Town, which is kind of about capitalism, but also yeah. draws very beautifully on the ancient material. Well, um, we'll do an episode on Hades yes, Town, but yeah, yeah like Hades Town is a loose and deeply inaccurate version of all myths involved. Yes. But it does, like, do something with the material. Yes. This does not do anything with the material. It's doing something as a story. Mm -hmm. It is telling a story. They have their own, like, themes. They have their own ideas and things that they're trying to accomplish with their storytelling. But they're not doing those things by using the Homeric material effectively. It's like this could have been, this might as well have been Game of Thrones. Yeah. Right? Like they might as well have set this in a fantasy world for this all is the that thing it is, you could have You could have just done this as fantasy of some kind and said that it was loosely inspired by the Iliad. Yeah. Instead of it being like, we're going to tell the story of Troy you could have just told the story of of some fictional city and done a lot of the stuff without they seem it seems like they felt like shackled to certain characters and events like basically everything to do with Achilles. Yes. They seemed to do it because they felt like they had to and not because they were really interested in it, which to me I'm like so why didn't you just invent a circumstance and then leave out all that other shit that you didn't want to do. Yeah, well, because it really seemed like they wanted to do a, they really wanted to do a hero's journey with Paris. Yeah. Which is w weird choice, but then it ends up feeling very forced and Paris's character development doesn't actually make any sense because they're trying to fit him in the into the confines of what happens in the Iliad. So then his character development has to be, oh, he says out loud that he has changed. Yeah. Instead of him making choices yeah, by the end, to make him change. He goes from being like a shepherd farm boy to being a prince of Troy, which isn't a character arc that I hate or that I think is like strictly unrealistic per se, but it does feel weirdly forced, especially since in these last couple episodes, all of a sudden, he's like, yes, I'm going to take charge of the armies. I am a prince of Troy. I'm going to look after the city. The city comes first. And it's like, where is this all coming from? Yeah, there's no, there there are no events that cause the character development. Yeah. Um, which is, like, deeply frustrating. It's like, okay, well, if you wanted to tell a hero's journey story, just, like, make something up. Like... People love Star Wars. It's a basic hero's journey story, but people love it. So, like, there you can yeah. you can do this. There's a way to do a basic hero's journey story in a very, like, effective way. And they sure didn't do that because yeah. they shackled themselves to source material. And the other thing is, like, if you want to tell the story of the Iliad but center Paris as the main character, do that instead of cramming in a bunch of this other stuff. Like, here's the thing is, like, I've complained a lot about how they didn't take enough time to do the Greek stuff, but it's because they tried to do some of it and just, like, half-assed it. It's like, if you had basically cut almost everything to do with the Greeks and actually just had this be a show about Paris and about the Trojans and elaborated more on 
all of the stuff that's happening inside Troy and the other Trojan princes and Paris's relationships with them and the coming and going of Trojan allies, like the arrival of Penthesilea as an ally at the 11th hour to try to challenge Achilles in the wake of Hector's death when all seems kind of lost could have been like a really big, excellent moment from the perspective of the Trojans if this had all been from the perspective of the Trojans. But instead, we actually do get a lot of stuff that is like the material that is the Greeks. And so instead, it's like you've kind of half-assed all of the development and relationships on the Trojan side, and you half-assed all the development and relationships on the Greek side. Yeah, and I I wish that like, I feel like you could have Paris as a main character and do it in a really interesting way. Like, there's a way to make that an interesting story. But in order to do that, you have to accept that Paris is a bag of dicks. Like, that has to be, like, part of the plot. Yeah. You could say something really interesting, for example, about, like, power or something. Yeah. Talking about Paris's like, poor decision-making. Yeah. Um, and how he ends up sort of weaving this fate. Yeah. You um, either have to make him likable or not. Yeah. And they, like, failed yeah, I think they thought they were making him likable, but a lot of the things he does, he has to do in the plot, are just so unlikable. Like, yeah. taking Helen away with him is, like, just a deeply unlikable action. So you can't really make him likable unless you change, like, Helen's circumstances so it's, like, obvious that he's saving her or something, which I think is what they were going for, but, I mean, we talked about this earlier. Like, it just doesn't work. Overall, I think ultimately the verdict is that they just don't use the material very effectively, and a lot of the stuff that they try to do ultimately just fell flat for both of us as viewers of this show. A lot of this, like, it just wasn't compelling in a lot of ways, and also the ca- costuming was a fucking nightmare disaster right up until the very last minute. Yes, um, I just would like to end on noting that there was a point in Hector's funeral, where Helen is wearing a headdress that genuinely looks like a bath mat. Looks like somebody put a bath mat on her head. So, um... Both of us are gonna die mad about the costuming in this show, and that's that. Yep. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode in two weeks will be on Percy Jackson and the Olympians, Book One, The Lightning Thief, by Rick Riordan. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. <laughs>